Today's reading is from John chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who have give, you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world we know, will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want them those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. 
Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make known you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. That is the word of God. Well, welcome. My name is Michael Miller, and I'm excited to be in John 17 with you today. Uh, this passage is one that, more so than almost any other passage, I think is very easy to see what Jesus wants for you from this passage. And I'm just going to state that right off. He, he desires your unity. My question, though, is can I truly convey, convey that beyond just that word to you guys today? So I want to start off by, by praying for that uh, to happen. Jesus, you, you are pretty explicit in your words here. Uh, you even talk to us. Um, would you do that through me as well? I, I have this burden to try to try to say more um, than just the simple that you, you want us to be unified, but to kind of expound on that. And I do pray that you would be speaking through me, that your spirit would recall to my mind what you have been showing me. Uh, if there's other things that you want in, that you would uh, bring them up and that they would be spoken. Be in this time with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, this passage is uh, exciting. Imagine if you were at home, like you are right now, sitting around dining room table with family, maybe with some friends, and your house was surrounded by an angry mob. They had weapons, or his guns, or his pitchforks, and they were almost ready to break in, banging on the door, banging on the windows, and you knew there was nothing you can do. There's no police response that you could call. There's nothing you could do to defend, defend yourself. It's just you and some others sitting around the table. What would you do in that moment, knowing that and they're about to break in? What would you spend that time doing? Would you be cowering in fear? Would you be uh, just trying to devise some other plan, trying to figure out uh, is there anything else I could do? Uh, we, we are really at that moment in this story in John 17. This is the precipice. Uh, we've been sort of paused, hanging for weeks and weeks now of right at the edge of this cliff that we're about to jump off. And this is the very end of it, this, this chapter, John 17. We finish John 17 and the narrative starts moving really fast right after this. You're going to have um, we go right into the passion. Jesus is going to be suffering. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. Uh, we've got, uh, we've already had, he's talked about how Peter's going to deny him, but now we're going to see that take place. And then there's going to be all kind of that bringing Peter back, bringing the disciples back, reconciling them. But it, it moves fast. I mean, we're, we're just into the end of the book here, here right after this point. Um, and really, so this is that last moment of Jesus talking right before all of that happens. The, the high point of Jesus' passion is coming. And what Jesus does in that moment of sitting around knowing that the soldiers are out there, they are coming at the beginning of this next chapter to arrest Jesus and to uh, beat him. What he does is he takes his disciples and he prays that they will, he prays for them and prepares them for this moment when he's going to be taken away from them and they're going to be scattered and alone. So he prepares for this moment of being drugged out and scattered, and that is, that's what he's doing at the last moment here. 
Uh, so in this passage, we've, we've actually been in this, like I mentioned, kind of on a, a precipice hanging with the narrative paused in just discourse, Jesus talking for, it's probably been a good six weeks, month and a half, two months of, of doing that. Really, this section goes all the way from John 12 uh, through right now John 17. And John 12, if you remember way back then, was uh, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry that takes place. And immediately afterwards, there's this weird section where um, so some Greeks come to and they want to see Jesus. And that in and of itself doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but Jesus takes it as a sign. Like when they're coming, he says, okay, that's a sign that something has changed right now in my ministry. And before that moment, uh, Jesus often says, like, the hour has not yet come, or the hour is coming, or my time is not yet here. And all of a sudden, there's these Greeks that come to see Jesus in John chapter 12, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and it's this switch, it's this moment, and ever since that moment in John 12, we have been at this point of the hour has come. Um, the hour of Jesus' death and his resurrection, the hour of Jesus' passion is now. And so he says that, he takes his disciples uh, into an upper room, they celebrate the Passover, they celebrate the first communion, and he washes their feet and he talks to them. And ever since that moment with those Greeks coming, Jesus has been talking to his disciples, sharing with them the last things he can do to prepare them for this time of when he is going to go away, he's going to die Everything's going to change from their expectations. He wants them to be as, as ready as they can be. And uh, he, he's been prepping for that. So this is, uh, this is the very end of that. It's been Jesus talking to the disciples up through chapter 16. And now chapter 17 is the entire chapter, like you just heard, is a prayer. Um, it's kind of this amazing that he's, he's been talking to them, and then he moves from talking to them and finishes it off with a prayer. So our whole, our whole chapter today is, is a prayer of Jesus. Um, and it's kind of three parts. So there's first Jesus prays for, prays about his, himself, his situation. Uh, he then secondly prays for his disciples. And then what's really cool is Jesus goes on to pray for, for me and for you. Says he prays for those who will believe through uh, the words of his disciples. So it's really kind of the rest of the church going on through all the generations. And the cool part of that too is that Jesus, it's not just this kind of private prayer that he prays to God. Jesus knows that the disciples are listening and hearing what he's praying about. And he knows that you and I are going to read these words later on. He, he prays intentionally with the expectation that he's being overheard. And it is not just a personal prayer between him and God, but it's a personal prayer with an audience that's intended, that he wants to hear these words, that he prays for their benefit. He even says that in there, that this is not just, I don't pray this only for myself, I pray this for, for the rest of you who are here as well. He wants them to hear these words. Um, so with that said, uh, let's, let's jump into this. Let's jump into the, the passage in John 17. And like we said, with it being a prayer at the very end of this long discourse, uh, just like you would expect, he, his prayer is in line with what he's been talking to them about for the last multiple chapters. So you're, it's the same themes over and over again are hit. They're said differently maybe in this prayer, but it's the same stuff that John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John 15, John 16, all the same stuff that you've been hearing about each week is now said uh, in John 17 kind of in a different way. So those themes are sort of uh, rehashed, but in, in a prayer format. And 
It's really important to remember that for us, this has been over a month, but for the disciples, for Jesus, this is all takes place right in one moment, in one evening, and he goes out from here and gets arrested. So this is all this hanging of the hour has now come. He's at this point, all of this long, that it feels for us that these are things, things are very disassociated, that they're not connected. This all happens at once. Um, so keep that in mind as you, as you hear things from other weeks, uh, reflect on that. No, this is, that's not just some other topic we talked about back then. That's the same, Jesus is actually saying that right now at the same point. So back in, back in chapter 12, uh, we mentioned how Jesus, when those Greeks came, Jesus said, the hour has come and for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, and then says, basically, the unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Uh, so he's talking about his death. Uh, it's very clear that the hour has come, the hour for his death and for bearing much fruit. Well, what's this much fruit that he's talking about here? Uh, there is a fascinating verse that I want to uh, turn to here. It's in Isaiah chapter 49. It's a prophecy of Jesus. Uh, we've had a bunch of different uh, ones of these of Isaiah portions that we've gone to. And this is uh, verses three through seven. So Isaiah 49, three through seven. Uh, I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, but he starts out saying, you, the father speaking of Jesus, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. And then there's this cool thing. He says, it is too light a thing to just bring back the nation of Israel. I will make you a light to all the nations so that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. So here's this, this crazy thing. God's like, it's not enough to just have you go to go to Israel. Like you, my servant, you, my Messiah, my chosen one, you're going to go to all the nations. All of them are going to be drawn towards me through you. And so this is what happens when these Greeks start to come. Jesus takes it as a sign because he says, well, all the nations are starting to come. That thing that has been prophesied about me, that mission that God has given me, that it is my role to obey in is happening now. Therefore, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus says, that's how he knows. It's my moment. And uh, it, he says, if you recall back then, there was, um, he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice, a thundering voice called out and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And everybody's kind of looking around like, is that thunder? Is it an angel? What's going on there? But this voice from heaven calls out and says, not only in Jesus's life already has the Father been glorified, but in this thing that's coming up, that's about to happen, he, he shall be glorified. Uh, he will be glorified in this. Um, so let's look at what, is, what does he say? Uh, well, you're going to immediately notice these similarities again. Uh, chapter 17, uh, again, Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven and says, Father, so this is the beginning of his prayer. Verse 1, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. It's just this exact repeat of what he has said is, is taking place in chapter 12. Um, and then he says, you have given him authority over all flesh. So basically, um, and then all to whom you've given him. So all that the Father, all the people that the Father has given to the Son um, in his name, uh, they are going to know the only true God and know his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says, basically, by the way, that, that is eternal life, that they would know the father and that they would know the son, that's eternal life, um, which is 
pretty cool. I think there's, I, I can hear eternal life and I immediately think that means believing that Jesus is the son of God so I can go to heaven when I die. And it, it doesn't say that. Like eternal life, when I hear the word eternal, that immediately makes me think forever. So it's about the quantity that you get. Of It's about checking off that I get life that keeps going forever and ever. But notice here, it's about knowing God. Now, I can tell you that I have a son named Paxton, and some of you know him, and uh, you'll say, yep, you do. And others of you uh, don't necessarily know him, but you'll, you'll believe me. I have no reason to, to doubt what I'm saying there. Um, but you don't know Paxton if you have not met him. Um, it's different than just uh, believing that my son exists and that his name is Paxton. Uh, to truly know him is something different. It's, it's a relationship. Talking, when we talk about knowing, when we use those words, we're talking about relationship. And here, uh, when he explains what, in verse 3, what eternal life is, he's emphasizing it's a relationship. It's knowing God the Father. It's knowing God the Son. Um, it's not about quantity of life. It's about quality of life. That's, what, that's what's being emphasized here with uh, explaining what eternal life is in this. Um, and so he says, really, that um, this hour is coming, glorifying the Son of God, that this is going to bring where people are going to know the Father and know the Son. And it's kind of a weird way to say it, that uh, the Son being glorified, when we know that what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his coming death and his resurrection. Uh, he's talking about that amazing event that's coming, but he doesn't say, the hour has come for me to die, and then I'm going to rise again. He says it in sort of this, uh, what to me sounds a little confusing as far as talking about being glorified. And we're going we're gonna to hit on that again in a minute, because uh, I, I find that confusing. When I was reading through this, uh, it, it said the word glory too many times. And, and I just kept going, what is this talking about? What, what is that? So rest assured, we'll come back. We'll, we'll touch on that. Um, but let's move on to the next thing Jesus does is he talks, he prays about and for his disciples. Um, so this is really from verse 6 all the way through, um, well, close to verse 20, um, is all about his disciples. And, but the main thing he prays for them, um, right about verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them, I guarded them. Um, Jesus is concerned that his disciples will fall away. And he says, I won't be there to make sure this doesn't happen. So Father, I'm praying that you would keep them, that you would guard them. He knows they're about to go through this crazy, uh, stressful, terrifying time. And he, he asks, and he prays in their presence that the Father would keep them. Now that to me is pretty incredible how, how comforting that would be. Um, when they're going through it, they can think back and know he prayed for me during this time. Like that is so incredibly comforting. He knew this was coming. He knew I would be terrified and he, he set me up for success with this. Um, that's amazing. And Jesus also knows that we uh, we'll be reading these words, knowing that he cares about them, that we will see what happens to those disciples afterwards as we read these stories. That's not a surprise. He expected that when he, when he prayed this prayer, that these words were going to be heard and written down and, and uh, passed on through the generations here. Um, so I think that Jesus actually intends us to learn from the disciples in this, that we can look at their terror, that we can look at his desire to comfort them, and that we can easily see that this is what Jesus desires for us. He does not want us either to fall away. 
Um, now, why would we fall away? When we think of Peter and that he's going to deny Jesus, it's really easy to just say, well, he was afraid of being persecuted. He didn't want to uh, suffer or have something bad happen to him. So he, he lied and he, he turned away from Jesus. Um, that is true kind of on a sort of superficial level of it. But, you know, I think what is deeper behind that is that Peter uh, had his expectations of what this life was going to be like, what the church was going to be like, what Christianity was, and it was different. And that's why he fell away. Because you know what? Later on, Peter suffers a lot, and he doesn't fall away during that. But he expects it, and he trusts that this is what God has for him, and he's willing to spend his life for the Lord for his sake. He even dies a martyr, and he does not fall away during that. Um, he, he goes courageously towards that death. Um, but I think what happens in the moment uh, with his disciples, and this is where there can really be correlation to us, is that um, our expectations of what the church will be like might not be met. Things might be different. Our expectations of what uh, life following Jesus will be like, it might turn out differently. And that's where it's easy to look at it and be like, oh, that's not what I expected. Uh, the, the crowds that were singing Hosanna in the highest and welcoming Jesus into uh, on the triumphal entry, they had an expectation that finally we're going to get rid of our Roman overseers and we're going to overthrow them or we're going to be our own nation and we'll no longer be a conquered people. And that was not Jesus' plan and that was not what happened. And they turned against him. They all fell away. They were part of the crowd that then screamed, crucify him. We want Barabbas, we do not want Jesus. Crucify him. Um, their expectations were not met, and they turned away. They fell away. It is easy for us to do the same thing. I encourage you to hold tightly to Jesus and not, not allow yourself when your expectations are not met to say, that's it, I'm done. This church was not what I expected it to be like, or I was just burned by this brother. I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore, and to, and to walk away from that. Take, um, know that Jesus longs for you not to fall away. He explicitly says it in chapter 16, the beginning of the chapter. Um, let's, let me read that real quick. He says, I have said all these things, this long discourse he's been doing. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And that's exactly what he prays. He prays that the disciples would not fall away. Um, he does not want you to fall away either. He cares for you. He longs for you to continue as his adopted child, as his the father's adopted child is Jesus' brother and sister in the faith. Let's move on to the, the third thing that Jesus prays for, because this is what I really want to camp on. Uh, Jesus continues after praying for the disciples, and um, chapter verse 20 is, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's, that's you and me. He is now going to pray for us. And what does he pray for us? in this last moment before he dies and rises again, before he faces this. What is his prayer? Um, he prays that we may all be one. Um, and this is so important that he says it two times in a row right here. He says, um, they all may be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you. So just like Jesus and the Father, the Trinity are one, he says, I want believers, this believer and this believer, this body, this church to be one. Um, he, he says it in a different way in the next verse down. He says, uh, 
I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So he also says that this unity, this oneness that he longs for is not just between believers, kind of in Jesus as the example, but actually we would be united to God the Father. We would be united to Jesus Christ. And in that uniting to them is how we also would be one with one another. Um, it's really this amazing thing. And in a sense, we're drawn up into the Trinity that he invites us in, into this wondrous relationship, this loving relationship that has been going on uh, since the beginning of time. Uh, and he invites us to be a part of that with him. Uh, and here's what's crazy. Jesus then says the reason why he wants us to be, be one is, he says it again twice. He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's in verse 21. And then just a little bit down in verse 23, he also says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, that's us, even as you loved me. That is not what I would expect Jesus to say here. Um, like if we wanted the world to know Jesus, I would say something else would tell them. Maybe it would be our words. Like we would go out and we would talk to them. Maybe it would be uh, some other type of thing, way that we serve them or uh, something like that. But Jesus says our unity is what will let them know who the Father is and that we are his and that that is something real, that we're not just making this all up. Um, that should give you pause that should make you really think that this is this unity is a bit more important maybe than just one more thing that yeah yeah okay try to remember to be unified that's really important here but this this is big this is central um this is the last thing jesus is praying right before his death and his resurrection now there's there's a way i want to caution you that i think we can take this wrong in the church and uh Certainly, I think the church can have a reputation as being judgmental, but I also think the church can have this almost opposite reputation of we're just sort of nice. And I think it comes from this desire, uh, a genuine desire to be unified with one another. We're like, I, I can't be offended by my brother because we need to be unified. I can't... Um, cause conflict. I don't want to be someone who says something bad about somebody else because this is the body of Christ and Jesus says to be unified with one another. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that that is a false unity. That unity can sound like it just means everything is swept under the rug and we, we don't have any problems with one another. Uh, but what real unity is um, Jesus says, again, already said it in this discourse that he is now praying at the very end. Um, let's turn there. John chapter 13, he says the same thing, but in different words. John 13, verse 35, he says, a new commandment, this is verse 34, actually, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then again, we have the same repetition that he says two times in the prayer. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love, I think, can be the, 
determining factor to be able to see, am I truly unified? Am I one with my brother in Christ? Think about a family. For um, It's easy for me to see in my family with my kids that um, just letting things go and pretending that everything's okay is actually not loving. Um, my son Paxton, he, I was correcting him about something the other day and he turned and he was upset and he says, nobody likes me, everyone's mean to me. But it wasn't true. It actually was the opposite was true. The reason I was willing to bring up behavior that was wrong and talk to him about it and confront him over this was because I loved him and I wanted his good and I wanted his growth. And the same goes for the body of Christ as goes for our families. If we love one another, if we truly want unity, we have to be courageous. It means being willing to have tough conversations when that's what's called for. When I look and I think, why do I want to say this to the person? I want to say this to them because I love them, because I want their good. Then I probably need to speak up. I need to share maybe the way that I was wronged, or I need to call out behavior that I think is wrong that should be repented of and turned towards the Lord. Now, you might be somebody that that's your thing. You love turning to others and pointing that finger and saying like, you're not following the Lord. You could be doing so much better here. And it takes wisdom to know what you're like and to know what is important in a given situation um, because that can also be done not with love. And when you see that the reason I want to point something out to somebody is because I want to get them, I want them to feel bad, or I want to feel better about myself, or I have some other motivation besides love, you know what probably loving is in that situation is to close your mouth, be silent, forgive, and let it go. It takes real wisdom to know what is loving and what builds unity. Sometimes it does mean courageously speaking up. Sometimes it means that we don't need to bring up everything. Um, but the determining factor is thinking through what in this situation is loving towards my brother or sister? What is the most loving thing I can do here? And then seeking that prayerfully and pursuing that. Um, that, is, that is how we love one another. That is how we have true unity here. Now, unity, let me be honest. Jesus says that he desires for us to be one, to be unified. And if this sermon today is only a reminder of that, that we should be unified, that's good and that's enough. What I would long for, what I would hope for is to give you actual practical steps for how to become more unified with one another, to how to pursue that, to how to help that happen and get there. And I do not think I can do that. I think that we live in a culture, in a climate where we are so not unified that I don't, I don't have that answer. Um, I don't think that I can, I can head there today. I wish that I could. I wish that I had those insights to share for you. Um, I do encourage you to be prayerfully seeking what those steps would be to um, draw in, to increase in unity with one another. But I hope to do at least one thing more than simply saying that uh, we ought to be unified and Jesus wants us to be unified. And that's to, um, I want to paint a picture and give you a vision for um, what we should be seeking and pursuing in that. So practical steps, I I do not feel up to that task, but I, I hope to give you some of a vision. And unfortunately, we live in a time that we are so polarized. There are so many uh, differences among people. There is uh, 
really a political climate where we are probably more against each other, more more polarized in that than we we have been at so many other times. Um, and interestingly, in there, there actually is some unity. Uh, it's smaller groups. It's not large groups, but uh, there are people that are drawing together that are saying we are a tribe and they are becoming unified. And there's multiples of them. But I don't think that we are in a place where we are, where when we look out at the world, when we look out at America, that we would say definitively the church is unified. And when I see the unity of the church, that makes me know that the Father loves them and they love the Father and the Father is being glorified. So I don't think that our lines of unity are are centered around that. I think that they're centered around something else. So let's think about that for a minute. Um, what is it in our world today that brings unity? I actually think that it's it's what we're against. When I look around me, when I think of people I know, what I see is people that um, become unified in a way that a certain group was unified in Jesus' day. And that group is the Herodians and the Pharisees. They were unified in what they were against. Mark 3, Mark chapter 3, verse 6 tells us this. It says that the Pharisees went out and they sought the Herodians to conspire together against Jesus. Now, when I read that, it's like, okay, cool, more people that don't like Jesus and they're they're together. Um, they were unified, but here's what's crazy. They were unified being against Jesus, but these were not people that should be unified. They hated each other. The Pharisees, who are they? They are the purists. They are the ones that they take the traditions, the sayings of the rabbis down through all the generations, and they want to hold everyone to that. They say, we cannot um, stray from those traditions. Uh, Sabbath, no, you cannot pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. You must keep it separated and do nothing. Don't heal on the Sabbath. The Herodians are not that group. The Herodians are the ones who loved Herod, and they loved Herod's lineage and his line, and they wanted to see them ruling over the Jews. So it's this group of Jews that supported the, the puppet ruler that was put in place by Rome. And Herod was this guy who was big on saying, I want to bring in Greek culture, Greco-Roman culture, and I want it to come into this area and it to be the thing that's at the front. So on the one hand, you have these people that are really pushing for Greek culture. And on the other, you have the Jews that are pushing for our traditions with the rabbis, and those are incompatible, and they are at war with one another, and yet they unify against Jesus. They conspire together. Uh, the Herodians come up with this whole thing of like, is he going to pay taxes to Caesar? Let's try to trap him in this. So the Pharisees say, uh, let's put a guy with a withered hand in front of him on the Sabbath, see if he's going to heal this guy. Maybe we'll be able to trap him in that. And together they're like, let's get this guy and let's kill him. Um, so they are unified, but they should not be. These are groups that are only unified in what they are against. It's the, the standard saying of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, that, that's what's going on there. And I think that is what happen, is happening today. When I look out, when I read things that people post on social media, it's, it's hatred towards the other side. And, and it draws us in and unifies. Um, I, I love satire. I think that satire is very funny. Um, but think about for a minute what's happening with satire. There's the Babylon Bee on one side. There's Saturday Night Live. There's John Oliver. You have all these people that um, do satire, and it's truly funny. But what are they doing? 
They are mocking and belittling the other side and making them look stupid and pointing out, see how stupid they are? Good thing we are not like them. And that is what unifies us. We are drawn around unifying with one another, whether it's that let's all join together and try to get Biden elected because we can't stand Trump. Trump is so terrible. Or it's this world, this culture, this America is going down the tubes with progressivism and liberalism. And we need our savior Trump to save us because they are so evil, they are so vile, and we hate them. Let's unify behind him. That's what I see in the world today is we unify around what we are against. The best I can get to is to tell you that we need to instead be drawing together and choosing what we are unifying for. There is a kingdom that we should be pursuing that is not um, our vision of America. There is a kingdom that has a higher allegiance to us. And I think John 17, Jesus touches on it here at the very beginning. I said that we would get back to this thing about glory. Um, The first thing Jesus prays is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I believe that we, the sinner, the thing that unites us is to be that we are seeking to glorify the Father and that we are seeking to glorify the Son. Because it is too easy to say, yes, yes, we're supposed to be unified, but ah, those people, their, their beliefs, their doctrines are so weird. I can't unify with them. Or, ah, that guy... We're facing an existential threat where climate change is going to destroy our world and that person is actively fighting it. So I cannot unify with that believer over there. Um, it is not those things that we are against that we think are so evil that we could never do. We, that is not what's supposed to unify us. Um, too often we say killing babies is so terrible that I must unify with anyone and everyone I can to stop that. That is terrible. It's evil. But... There is something we are supposed to unify for, and it is bringing glory to the Father and glory to the Son. So what does that mean? When I think about glory, honestly, I I want to speed on. This is my confession. I want to speed on to the next portion of the chapter where it gets more exciting and good, because it's not a word that excites me. It's, um, that, is, that is something wrong about me. I think it actually should. Um, but it's it's not something that grabs my attention and holds it. And usually when I think about it, I think glory means worshiping. It's worshiping God. It's worshiping the Son. And that, I think, is true. That's a piece of it. But I don't think that's the whole story of what uh, glory is. So because it's not something that I, I latch onto and I focus on when I'm reading about it, it, it takes some work for me to really dive into the passage and really think about it. Um, Jesus, in this discourse from chapter 13 through chapter 16, again and again, He talks about glory, and again and again, he talks about the hour has come, and I'm going to obey the Father, and the Father's going to be glorified. And what we see him say here is that Jesus' actions, specifically his death, his choosing to suffer, are this obedience to what the Father has asked of him to do. This brings glory to God. Similarly, How do we bring glory to God? It is our choosing to obey what God has for us. And throughout these passages, this whole discourse, all of these chapters, and again in chapter 17, you'll see the words, 
as the Father has sent me, so I've sent you, or you are sent, or the disciples are sent out, or you're not of the world, but you are in it. Um, these words that there is a mission that we are on, there is a calling that we have, there is a purpose that we have. And when we obey, when we abide and bear fruit, when we love one another, when we don't stop and think, okay, I just got to love my uh, one another, but I can hate my hate my enemies, I can hate the other. Well, Jesus stops us with the parable of the Good Samaritan and explains, nope, everybody's your neighbor and you have to love everyone, even your enemy. Um, when, we, when we actually obey these commandments that he gives us, um, that is when we are bringing glory to God. And again and again through these passages, uh, you can read back through this entire discourse and you'll see the word commandment um, come up and it's kind of confusing. Wait, what are the commands? What is he giving me? Again and again, you will see Jesus say, there's just this one command. It's to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Um, that's it. He gives us this command and he says that the Father is glorified and the Son is glorified in that. And you are unified when you love one another and the world sees that this is real, that the Father has sent the Son, that the Son is sending you out into the world and that um, this is reality, that God is at work through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, drawing all peoples from all nations throughout the whole world to himself and reconciling them to himself. That is what brings glory to God. It's, it's his actions, his purposes going forward. And when they work, when what he desires for this world actually takes place, that brings glory for him to him. So when he sees it at work and it's happening, it's amazing. It's exciting. It's, it does cause us to worship. It causes us to say, wow, God, I am so amazed by, by what is taking place here. And, and we turn to that and we, we get excited. Let me, let me show you an example. Paint a picture here of a vision of what this could look like. Um, and this is actually true. This is um, at one point in time, uh, the church did look like this. This is uh, the year right around 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, the emperor Julian, he did not like Christians. In fact, there were a lot of Christians by that time. And he pushed hard to try to return um, people to what we would call pagan practices of worshiping these other false gods. Um, so he... He wrote some things down in his efforts to stop the Christians, and uh, this is what he says about the Christians. This is pretty amazing to me. Let me pull this up real quick. Um, so he called. He says atheism, and uh, because he's not a Christian, when he thinks talks about Christians, he calls them atheists. So atheism, that is the Christian faith, he says has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And through their care for the burial of the dead. He says, It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew, and by Jew he means Christians, because to him it was, well, it's one of the sects of the Jews. It's their, like, it's not a whole separate religion, it's part of the Jews. So he says, It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, remember the ones who followed Jesus of Galilee, and that the godless Gal Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. See, this is somebody who does not like Christianity, who does not want to follow the Lord. And yet he can see that in his day, the Christians are the ones who are 
loving their own, their brothers. They're caring for them. There are no one who is poor or begging among the Christians. And not only that, they're caring for everyone else. And it's the Christians that are doing that. And he knows that's a problem because it says, everybody's going to want to turn to them and become one of them. I don't want them to. But that kind of a witness, that kind of a love for one another is what draws people to the Lord. And he sees it happening and he does not like it. And he's trying to scheme for how to stop that. That is amazing. Uh, That is not what I see today. And I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get to the point where we are known for our love for one another, for our care for one another, for how we are supporting one another, and not known for our judgmental attitudes, not known for how we sweep things under the rug and are just nice. We're not known for how we drag other Christians down because they belong to some other political group or some other sect that we are not unified with, um, but we are known for our love for one another. I don't know how to get there. I encourage you to uh, spend time praying, asking God, how do I get there? Spend time talking with one another. These discussions spark. This is this can be the beginning of discussing that. It's not the end. I don't have all the answers today. Um, but what I do want to do is have us take one step um, that direction. So this week, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to ask each of you to as well. I would like you to find one other believer, preferably somebody in this church. Um, it is okay if they are a family member who you're already around. Um, if you are during this time of being a bit more isolated, if you're still able to go and meet with someone else, then take that extra step to let it be somebody who is not necessarily somebody living in your own home. But find another believer, find another person in this church, and sit down and pray with them and pray about unity. Do what Jesus did, pray to the Father, but in the presence of this other. So if it is someone who you feel you have wronged, I want you not to turn and confess to that person. I want you to confess to the Father in the presence of this other person. If it is someone who you want to be more unified, pray to God asking for how to make this happen. Um, Pray for the good of that other person. Pray for their growth. Pray for the ways that they can be um, to not fall away like the disciples were tempted to do when Jesus was taken from them. Uh, Pray for the enabling and the empowering of the Spirit to grow them in their life. And spend some time, both of you together, in the presence of one another, to the Lord, praying for each other. You can do this with more than one other person. It can be a group of three. It can be a group of four. I think if you get too large, it's going to take too long where your minds will wander. And I really want this to truly be where we are listening to one another, that we're praying in the presence of one another. But spend some time, just as Jesus did, praying for our unity praying that we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one, that we'd be one because we are one with the Father and because we are one with the Son, and that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. The world would know that because they see our unity. Thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, We certainly thank you for what you have done for us with your death and your resurrection, with your suffering, with setting your face resolutely towards the pain and the awfulness of this hour that has come upon you that we are reading about now in this passage. But Jesus, thank you for not only doing that. Thank you for also taking the time to talk to your disciples, 
to talk to us, to pray for your disciples, to pray for us, and to let us know your heart. Thank you for your words. We have had chapter after chapter that would be red letter, would be red letter in some Bibles that have just been you sharing your heart in your last moment, pouring it all out for us. And I thank you for that. I ask that we would take your words to heart, that we would implement them, that they would sink into our souls and they, they would be what we live out. And I ask that uh, you would help us to know how to go forward and to be unified like you desire for us, God. I want to keep it in the front of my mind that you desire unity, but I also want to pursue that. Will you help me to know? Will you help everyone in this church body to know what we can do to seek the unity amongst one another that you long for and that you have prayed for here? And I ask this, that your name, Jesus, and that the name of the Father would be glorified. Amen.